Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and alhamdulillah um falcha idash gu fish laurichen iqra welcome back to the iqra book festival if you're just joining us again and alhamdulillah we've had a beautiful session they are um talking about the 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 poet of the east um, Iqbal and mashallah the beautiful uh, documentary by Jeremiah Hammerling too well alhamdulillah I mean it's just become so beautiful and um, it reminds me that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught by the pen and alhamdulillah for books um, that you know we can learn to such beautiful levels um, and, and uh, sharing that too alhamdulillah well we're moving on we're moving on to our final session uh, one that I have been looking forward to um, as a real favourite uh, book of mine um uh, so I would like to pass you on to Brother uh, Basith uh, to introduce the next session. Assalamu alaikum. It, it's my distinct pleasure and privilege to welcome the last author at this year's Ikra Book Festival. Uh, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad is one of the contemporary world's most eminent Islamic scholars, teachers and thinkers. He is the founder and dean of the Cambridge Muslim College. He is Director of Studies at Wolfson College, Cambridge, and he's also a lecturer in Islamic Studies and the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge. Uh, the Sheikh is also the visionary force behind Europe's first eco-friendly mosque, the Cambridge Central Mosque. Um, his published works include Understanding the Four Mazhabs, Muslim Songs of the British Isles, Bombing Without Moonlight, Commentary on the Eleventh Contentions and Traveling Home Essays on Islam in Europe. He has also edited, among others, the Cambridge Companion to Classic Islamic Theology and translated classical Arabic texts, including Qasida Burda Sharif, The Mantle Adorned by Imam al Busseri, and The Remembrance of Death in the Afterlife by Imam Ghazali. Um, Sheikh Abdul Hakim, we are honored that you're here with us today uh, to, to discuss the issues that you raise in your book. Traveling Home, Essays on Islam in Europe. Welcome. Thank you so much. And thank you for the uh, invitation to join you at this uh, amazing event. Sheikh, can I, can I please start by asking you why, why you felt the need to, to write or put together this book of, as you call them, polemical essays, uh, clearly directed at those within the faith and within the community. Why, why now and, and for what purpose? Well, it's a rather odd kind of book in that, for the most part, it consists of kind of refreshed essays based on talks that I've given over the last 10 years or so, broadly linked by the theme of Islam and Europe, Islam in Europe, European Islam, uh, something that continues to grow in importance and you could regard as perhaps the, the most important question facing the European continent at the moment, not just from the point of view of asylum seekers, refugees, the crisis in the birth rate, but the problem of radicalization, problem of integration, the problem of criminalization. I don't really think that there's a, a larger and more difficult question facing the UK or uh, Europe uh, than this. America is a different matter, Australia is a different matter, but the uh, you could say that the uh, lightning rod for most of the huge mega controversies surrounding the current east-west dynamic, as I suppose Iqbal might have seen it, is actually the European continent with the rise of figures like Eric Zemmour in France, for instance, the, the extraordinary volatility now of the electoral process. So it looked like a good time to try and drag some of these things out of a possibly well-deserved obscurity and try and uh, knock them together to produce an actual book. Can, 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 I, can, you, can you please explain to us what appears to be quite an enigmatic title for, for this, this book? 
uh, you know, about essays in uh, about Islam in Europe, you know, it seems that you've as if you've flipped the narrative on on a very strongly entrenched view that people have of us as being somehow not from these parts. Yeah, I think that uh, well, the title means several things according to taste. Really, one of the things I'm saying about Islam is that it represents a homeland in exile, as uh, Imam Ali used to say. Watanun fil Gurba, that it gives you a very mobile, complete set of reference points with which to live your life and on the basis of which to make sense of a huge variety of different human experiences and habitats. So Islam is a home that travels, if you like, traveling home in that sense. But also uh, traveling home, if you like, in the Sufi sense, the idea that uh, God is our homeland, the, the divine Watan, from which we are in some sense, you know, experiencing an exile and to whom is the return the ma'ad so uh returning to the watan in that in that sense which is the real journey the real migration that we're all caught up in and then the most obvious sense i suppose is ways in which we can make real in our sense of sort of supposed external exile uh the quran's insistence that uh the whole earth belongs to god God is the owner of the East and the West. Wherever you turn, there is his face. And one of the khasa'is, the special qualities of the Holy Prophet وسلم, according to a well-known sound hadith, is the whole earth has been made a mosque for me. So because Muslims recognize uh, the signs of God in a country, what I'm saying, again, it is quite polemical, is that we can reverse the usual stereotype of Muslims as being kind of sojourners or visitors or people who are here provisionally and don't have roots and say, actually, because the Muslims are the ones who know what nature is and what the landscape is and recognize the divine authorship of a country, Muslims belong more in these European countries than the kind of ex-Christian, floating, atheistic, nowhere people who increasingly form you know, the majority of our fellow citizens. So that's really what I'm getting at, I think, with this idea of traveling home. The believer is never really in exile because you can't be intrinsically exiled from God except through the process of sin, which can be overcome anywhere. I've come across fascinating terms in the book. So you, you call the believer an, an Ishmaelite and, and use yep. the term quite interchangeably with the being mm-hmm. a Muslim. What is the historical and spiritual significance of that for us? Well, it's an attempt to reappropriate a term that was used very negatively about us by Jews and Christians for a long time. It's, of course, the great Abrahamic bifurcation, Isaac and Ishmael, which was received by many Bible readers as the bifurcation between chosen and unchosen. There's the chosen people, and that becomes the church, and then there's the unchosen, the Ishmaelites, who are half Egyptian, because Hajar, the mother of Ismail, is Egyptian, and therefore according to the various ethnic dichotomies present in the minds of many of the authors of the book of Genesis, they're the, they're the kind of outgroup. Egypt is the other place, the place that is not chosen. Paradigmatically, it's African, it's not from the people. Uh, and so really from St. Paul through St. Augustine, through Aquinas, and in many kind of evangelical Christian circles today when they're talking about why we need to invade Iraq or something, there's a big conversations in the US. Uh, the, the heart of the war lobby in America usually is, is the evangelical right, that they use this image of Ishmael as being unworthy, the outcast, the one whom God has unchosen. Uh, whereas from our narrative point of view, of course, again, we flip that. 
by saying that we don't regard the Isaac Ishmael binary as an either or, but the Quran always makes it a both and. We're the people who accept all the founders of the monotheisms. We accept Moses and Jesus and Sayyidina Muhammad uh, in a particular way that the Quran details very exquisitely. It's inclusive, but without neglecting to point out certain things that are not compatible with, with proper monotheism. So, yeah, I think it's a useful self-designation, the Ishmaelite, uh, the one who is paradigmatically cast out and rejected and regarded as ethnically problematic by, by Europe, but the one who, in God's wisdom, actually turns out to be the vindication of that more or less universal religious principle that God actually usually turns out to be with the dispossessed, with the exiled, with the outcast. It's a kind of liberation theology idea, and I think, the, the divine purpose in raising up the Holy Prophet from a despised outcast people, the Arabs, the Ishmaelites, kind of not part of the Eastern Mediterranean Roman civilized world, but regarded as sort of gypsies, outcast, untouchables, that there is a tremendous uh, re-establishment of a divine principle, um, that the stone that was rejected is become the headstone of the corner which is part of what God is doing with Islam. So to say that we are Ishmaelites is to remind us of that sacred history and to give us a bit more meaning than just to say that we're Muslims, which is almost now a tribal designation rather than something that has a clear sort of content. You, you say that the term Islamophobia is, is, is part Greek and past Arabic coinage mm. and is used by both those within Islam and those without, and it's fiercely contested. Yeah, you have proposed that we should use the term Lahabism, which you feel is a more mm -hmm. indigenously Islamic term. Could you please expound a bit on that for us, please? Yeah, it's just a kind of cheeky suggestion, really. Uh, the word Islamophobia was actually invented by a Muslim, um, Sheikh Abdul Hadi Aqili, back in 1907, seems to have been the first person to have used it. He was a Swedish Muslim who wrote a lot, really the first European Muslim theologian. I gave a talk recently about him, interesting guy. Mm. Um, so it's not a word that is imposed upon us in some kind of orientalistic or patronizing sense. But um, uh, I don't regard it as having much content. Uh, I think if, if you go back to the figure of Abu Lahab and the primal sort of good versus evil, rich versus righteous uh, dichotomies, of the founding story of Islam, you'll find that Abu Lahab is kind of the paradigm. And there's even, of course, the surah that's Surah al-Masad, which is about him, is in the Quran as the sign of tyranny, oppression, plutocracy, ignoring the weak, uh, polytheism, the kind of antitype of what Abrahamic monotheism is to be for. So the, the long story of rejection of Islam, which is particularly really, you could say it's constitutive of European history and gives Europe its defining moments like the Reconquista in Spain, the Inquisition, the Crusades, the boundaries of Europe are defined historically by that phobia, that if you uh, take it back to the origins of this in that titanic confrontation between the Holy Prophet and the, the plutocrats of Mecca, it somehow is warmer and more resonant as a concept for Muslims rather than this rather odd, rather sociological sounding term, Islamophobia, which I still go on to use occasionally. I'm not saying it shouldn't be there, but I think it sometimes makes a deeper point if we use a term that resonates more directly with our heritage. Um, there's a chapter devoted to, to, to liberalism and, and one to, to nationalism in the, in the mm -hmm. book. Which yeah. of the two do you think is, is, is a big, should be a bigger concern to Muslims in, in the West and, in fact, to the greater Muslim Ummah? And is it all well, Greek? 
Well, nationalism, of course, is a problem in the Muslim world, <laughs> as yes. well as in the West. Uh, you could, without stretching it too much, see it as a recrudescence of the human tendency to put tribe before truth. And that, again, is one of the Qur'an's you know, revolutions. The Prophet's Mosque in Medina was the first space ever in Medina not to be tribally segmented. And evidently, it blew the minds of everybody when they saw that you could be standing next to a black man and next to a Greek and somebody from the rival tribe. And the only criterion was that you got to the mosque first, so you were at the front. That was one of his most kind of revolutionary, extraordinary transformations. Uh, so tribalism is just the traditional form of nationalism. It, it is linked more or less inexorably to <coughs> jahiliya. It's a zero-sum game. But it's changed a lot in Europe because if you look at the nationalisms of the 19th century and the early 20th century, they're very often re religiously founded. So you know, Francoism or the Carlists in Spain, for instance, they wanted to return to tradition, which was defined by the Catholic style of life and a particular set of values about family, abortion, family planning, going to church. If you look at videos of Franco Spain, you'll see that it was a Catholic, they call it national Catholicism. Whereas now with the uh, precipitous decline of Christian adhesion, uh, even though in Eastern Europe, sometimes the nationalists, especially in places like Poland and Hungary, try and play the religion card. Catholic Church isn't playing ball any longer. Generally, the Catholics seem to be pro-asylum seeker, pro-refugee, pro-human rights, and they don't like to be lumped in with that. So nationalism, insofar as it is resurging, is very poorly based actually in what is the essence of European identity, which is, which is Christianity. So I think the, the greater threat really is this thing called populism. Uh, which is a kind of nationalism that isn't trying to resurrect a local tradition because it's beyond reach, really. People are not going to go back to traditional gender roles. They're not going to go back to traditional understandings of region, dialect, self, meaning of life, going to church. That's not, that's not going to come back uh, as far as one can see. And instead, you have this very negative definition of the self as being that which is not foreign. So its main ingredient is just xenophobia. It isn't church going, but it knows that it doesn't like Roma and gypsies and Romanians and Muslims and the European Union. And it just tends to be defined in terms of what it doesn't want to be, uh, which again makes it very volatile. That's one reason why it flipped so much in the polls. The BNP were riding high for a while and now they've dropped out of sight. And now that kind of movement is coming back with bewildering speed in places like France and, <coughs> and Austria. And that volatility is a sign of the fact that it's based on people's insecurities and phobias, if you like. It's not really based on any strong sense of an ideal of what the nation should be, the way, say, Francoism was. So, uh, but it's a threat for us insofar as usually the dark other against which the European nation constructs itself tends to be a Muslim other. Um, it, that's become particularly problematic for those of us who want to see it not as them versus us, but as different ways of being European. Sure. Talking about the dark other, you know, there's a chapter about the war in Bosnia. Yep. I wonder what the lessons of history are and how do we manage never again? Uh, and, and when they talk about European values, should mm -hmm. we be looking at how we, do we need to assimilate or integrate or should they accept us as, as we are? Well, integration and assimilation are not the same thing. You can be integrated, in other words, you're fully part of civil society while retaining your values. 
and there's always going to be contested margins whose battleground is usually education and certain legislation about gender, sexualities, trans rights and so forth. And every religious community is fighting that battle at the moment. But that doesn't mean you can't be indigenous because belongingness is no longer defined as membership of a national church the way it was in England um, until living memory, really. So it's, it's a lot easier for us than it was, say, in the Middle Ages. There have been Muslims in Britain for hundreds of years and until the mid-19th century, they weren't allowed to exist openly. And some of them were killed. The famous story of the Welsh Muslim martyrs in the 16th century, who, when their Islam was discovered, they were impaled on stakes by order of the church. That was the fate of the Ishmaelites in earlier periods. And it's a lot better now. But um, still, there is the issue of the, the paradox of the, 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 the reality, which is that Europe has historically defined itself as that which is not Muslim. It was the last bit of the Roman world that didn't convert to Islam. And the Muslims got halfway through France and, you know, there was only a tiny little bit of the Roman Empire that wasn't captured by the Muslims. Um, I worked out once that the early Muslims went 92% of the distance from Medina to Cambridge. You know, they almost did it all. And then they didn't like the weather and there was a bad battle and they never did the last bit. But Europe has historically been traumatized by that. So the paradox we face is that the, uh, the religion against which Europe historically defined itself is now Europe's largest minority everywhere and quite a considerable minority. So <laughs> it's not like trying to assimilate Jain or Buddhist people who don't have a history of competing with say British or French or German ethnicity, it's much more visceral. And the danger is that some of those old stories are going to be mobilized by the, by the nationalists for their own reasons. And they can quite often lend themselves to that. Plenty of Latter-day Crusaders and Reconquista warriors um, strutting their stuff on the internet now. One of, one of my favorite chapters in the book is the, the chapter which is an essay on, on the venomous bidder of Tanfir. Mm-hmm. And if you would uh, kindly allow me, I'd like to just read um, one or two passages from it. Um, uh, it says, as, as meta-citizens, we are called to Ar-Rahman, facing each other, but, but the collective Qibla. And therefore, we are to be fountainheads of mercy. And in this way, we call others to our way. This is Dawa, which is the work of the messengers and of every noble human soul since the earliest age of man. While it is an inflexible and constant duty for every Muslim everywhere, it's a calling and a privilege which rests with particular firmness upon the shoulders of Muslims who live in the spiritually eroded and morally unfixed Occident. And the, the, the other paragraph is, authentic Muslims are unavoidably people of beauty, for God loves the beautiful. This refers to beauty in its widest sense, moral, physical, and spiritual. The full spectrum of Ihsan, of doing the beautiful. Beauty reflects the divine presence and attracts the heart, thus opening the doors of truth to those who sit in shadows. Dawa is the pointing out of what is beautiful. It is therefore a disclosure and confirmation of the state of the refined believing soul. Yet if the soul has been misshaped by the ideologies of the fearful, it will disclose only ugliness. The disorder of a self racked by stress, disharmony and ill-controlled desires. Muslims who are fearful do not only repel others from themselves, but from the deen which they claim. Nothing is more subversive and obstructive of God's cause than offering an ugly manifestation of the self and claiming it to be Islamic. This is what is called tanfir, 
repelling souls instead of attracting them. So can you tell us why there is such a crisis of fear among us and, and what mm. is the cure for it? Well, it's a kind of crisis of faith, I think. We've forgotten in our preoccupation with displaying our commitment to small details, what is the essence of the thing, which is the good news of proclaiming the divine unity and mercy and the Holy Prophet وسلم, sent us a mercy to the world and Islam as a religion of ease that makes things easier than they were under Christianity, under rabbinic Judaism, et cetera, et cetera. It's the way of ease and it's the most obvious clear-cut uh, self-explanatory definition of monotheism ever. However, Muslims coming to the Western world often come with such overwhelming cultural baggage and sometimes complexes that they don't come for the purpose of da'wah, but they come for various other reasons. Forgetting the first hadith of Islam, which is the beginning of Bukhari, which is uh, the hadith of Hijrah. Migrate for Allah and his messenger, that's what you'll get. Migrate for some dunya thing or to marry somebody, maybe to get a passport, who knows what, then you're, ma you're migrating for that. Niyyah is all important in Islam. So I think we need a kind of Nia reset in our communities, including I think many of the convert communities, uh, so that we are clear that we are here uh, in an annunciatory role, that in an age of confusion, anxiety, etc., we need to be giving people the, 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 the Holy Prophet's message, is Bashir, he's the one who brings good news. Instead, we often, in our self-righteousness and insecurity, reach for forms of Islam that make us feel better because they make us look so fierce and perfect. And that just repels people. Narrow-mindedness always repels people, which is why the Hadith says, may fanatics perish. Holy Prophet, if you look at the Sirah, didn't like people who were crazily narrow-minded. And Imam Ghazali and all of our scholars really point out that religious narrow-mindedness is usually a sign not of taqwa and God-wariness, but of a desire to prove to oneself and one's, uh, and others one's own superiority. Uh, and we've lost sight of that because of our insecurity. Maybe we buy a big car and put it in front of our houses to make people respect us more. Or maybe we put on a particular style of dress and aggressively glare at people in the mosque if they're not perfect in our eyes, but it's the same complex. Instead of doing what we're required to do, which is prophetically to make things easy for them, to listen to their problems, to show Islam as a set of solutions rather than a set of problems, it's uh, uh, a huge and tragic wasted opportunity, I think. And we need to snap out of this kind of comfortable warm bath of self-indulgent narrow-mindedness and start doing our duty, which is to express the beauty of Islam as a set of answers to people's questions. Chef, there's so much, there's so much rage and so much anger in people, and you address that in another chapter in the book, where you talk yeah. about good and bad, bad anger. Uh, do we have a right to be angry, and 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 where does the the the, the power of mercy um, fit into this scheme of things? You you talk about the, the prophet's prayer at at Taif, yeah. and you quote that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean there is a way in which we can be legitimately angry because to see monstrous injustice and just to kind of be neutral is itself something outrageous. Holy Prophet sometimes became angry, but he became angry because other people's rights or God's rights were being infringed, but he wasn't angry for himself. 
And there's all of these beautiful hadiths about rough Bedouin who come up to him and yank his clothes and speak to him disrespectfully and interrupt his khutbas. He's always, you know, he gives them what they can understand. He gives them some money, he gives them a word of wisdom. That's, so his anger was, as they say, a kind of cold anger. God's anger, when you see injustice, Moses should be angry with Pharaoh. We should be angry with Stalin, whoever, that's legitimate. So unfortunately, there's an anger that is kind of, as the Hadith says, like a burning coal within us, which is where the Holy Prophet says, if you feel that, sit down. If it's still there, lie down. He really didn't like that kind of anger because it's the basis of so much sectarianism, so much pointless, judgmental rejection of other people and is simply not the way of the ulama. All of the scholars I spoke to were enormously sort of indulgent and forgiving of people's weaknesses and would never draw attention to their faults. I studied for years in the Middle East and they were all people of beautiful tolerance and open-mindedness, strict with themselves. They would never miss their tahajjud prayers. They were people of ibadah, but endlessly kind and forgiving towards, towards others. And uh, it's a shame that because of our the panic attack, which the Ummah is suffering at the moment, that we've lost sight of that, and that we, ex we use religion as a megaphone with which to express our own insecurities, rather than as a medicine. Rahmatun wa shifa, the Quran says it's mercy and a healing, but we don't really look like a mercy and a healing to many of our neighbours. You talk about this, this, this in society, this crucible of anger, and, and, and how that can be addressed by championing traditional traditional arts in Islam. Uh, could you say something about that for us? Well, I mean, if you, if you look at one of the great buildings anywhere in the Islamic world and just see how tourists react, you can imagine how many accumulated rewards are going still to the original craftsmen and designers of that building. Uh, one of the big moments in my son's relationship to Islam was when I took him at the age of about six, I suppose, to Samarkand and we went to Registan Square. And there are the madrasas in their blue and gold incredibility. And he just kind of stood there and unusually for him, he didn't run about, he didn't say anything. He was just completely overwhelmed. And for years afterwards, he would be saying, daddy, can we go to Registan Square again? That's the power of beauty. And the Ummah has produced so much historically. Whatever the Hindu nationalists may claim, the tourists want to see the Taj Mahal, they don't want to see a temple. Whatever the Spanish nationalists might claim, the tourists in Spain, they want to see the Alhambra, they don't want to see the Escorial. Islam outnarrates other communities and produces these wonders. And we need to do that, you know, not just in architecture, but also in uh, the kind of books that we write, the kind of design values, the kind of lifestyle, the kind of tajweed, the azan. We're supposed to be people of Ihsan, which literally means doing what's beautiful. It's interesting. My, my son is called Sinan. And, and most the thing that I cherish most is this memory of us going to Istanbul together, yep. Yep. going to the Soleimani Masjid and, and mm -hmm. he and I saying Fatiha outside the outside the little tomb of, of, of Sinan, yep. the, the architect. And, and, and that has stayed with me. And I, and I think yep. in the most wonderful way. Um, uh, Something else that I want to talk about is the, the, the idea of pushback with something more, more beautiful. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, where can Muslims, I mean, one of the things I find is, is perhaps the Arabic or the Urdu word shaur. Uh, where do Muslims have the shaur to, to stop complaining and, and instead become yeah. a source of healing and, 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 and therapy for people around us? Do we, do yeah. we have it in us to do that? Well, there's a huge grievance culture 
we feel. People are rude to us, let's stop them through legislation. People don't like us, let's fight that. We haven't got enough money. And it's kind of grumble, grumble, grumble from a lot of Muslim organizations. And nobody really likes grumblers. Uh, and the it's a humiliation as well for God's people to be kind of begging and asking for things and grumbling all the time. It's not dignified. We need to experience the misfortunes that come to us at the hands sometimes of hostile people as an opportunity to win them over rather than as an opportunity to grumble and feel aggrieved this kind of victim mentality and again with my teachers in the middle east i saw this one evening i was at a uh, molid gathering of prophets uh, uh, recollection in Jeddah, where such things are kind of not really approved of by the authorities. And somebody from the government came along, a minister of something. And during this session, he started shouting and saying, this is bid'ah, this is haram, what you're doing is against the sunnah, etc. Afterwards, people said to the sheikh, well, are you going to complain? This is outrageous. It's so rude in Arab culture to interrupt somebody else's gathering and to criticize it. And he said, no, the man was just do, acting in accordance with what he understood. Uh, his action will be judged according to his intention. And then one of the sheikh's disciples who was so amazed by this, and it actually, it was another government guy who wanted this intruder to be punished, but the sheikh told him no, was so amazed that he sent us in the gathering a suitcase. When we opened it, it was full of money. Uh, so the, the minister wasn't able to punish this guy, but instead, gave him some money. So we spent the rest of the evening going around the city of Jeddah, dishing out the money to people the Sheikh knew were in need. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I saw so many cases of outrageous behavior being dealt with just with a kind of smiling forgivingness because those people are so rich inside and so confident that they weren't rattled by, you know, as you know, Maulana Rumi says something beautiful about people who criticize the prophet. He says the moon in its course is not affected by the barking of dogs. It's fun. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you're perfection, uh, well, let the dogs bark and it, it's just silly. Um, if you start to panic, then that shows that you, it's got to you and that you're worried about the dogs and uh, you're insecure. That's their victory. So yeah, pushing back with something better, which is a Quranic instruction. The Quran says, push back what is evil with something better. And then the one between you and him that was hostility will become like your closest friend. So when people insult us, let's see why they're insulting us and how deep that is and if we can win them over. And alhamdulillah, there's so many of these far right people in Europe joining Islam or thinking about joining Islam. I'm in correspondence with some of them. There was another one in Scandinavia last year who took his shahada and that was really a big deal. And it's, it's an ongoing process, but you won't bring them to Islam by pushing them away with foul language. And Sheikh, a lot of people, um, friends and family that I spoke to um, and, and mentioned that I was going to interview today said to me to ask a question which you actually cover in the chapter from Ahlul Kitab to Ahlul Kitab. So, yeah. We are increasingly living in a society which is uh, people of denial rather than people of the book. Yeah. And what people wanted to know was how do we hold on to our faith, our values, and be able to raise our children in a society where there is no faith? To be mm -hmm. Well, uh, it is obviously bewildering to many elders in our community 
that the Christian country which they thought they were migrating to 50 years ago is something quite different now and is adopting values even imposed by law that would have been regarded consensually as outrageous only a generation ago. The, the flux and the mobility of everything makes it hard for us to chart our position in any kind of stable way and everything becomes reactive. Firefighting is often all we can do. Uh, however, there is also the plus side, which is that if people are not doggedly embedded in their own religious heritage, uh, in most cases you find they still believe in God or a higher power, and it is easier for them to come to Islam than it used to be. So in this mosque in Cambridge, for instance, we now have an average of five people taking shahada every week, and the number keeps going up. And I know other mosques where it's the same kind of rate. According to the census figures 10 years ago, there's 100,000 converts in England. So it's hard speaking to people when they don't belong to a religious tradition that Islam recognizes. But it also means that their traditional prejudices and uh, expectations and sense of self has been dissolved, and that it's actually easier to reach out to people than it used to be, which again takes us back to the purpose of why we're here, which is really dawah. We're not really here in the eyes of Sharia to buy nice cars and to show off to relatives back home. That's not recognized in Islam. We are here in order to proclaim God's truth. And our success here will depend entirely on whether we are sincere in that. So it's quite interesting. Next next week in Glasgow is the, the climate conference starts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the chapters that truly touched my heart is the is the essay on creation spirituality. Yeah. Um, can you can you tell us a bit about the, the, the green man and how directly or implicitly he is uh, an Ishmaelite or Islamic? And 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 the beautiful principle of Nafsur Rahman or the, the breath of the compassionate. Yeah, I mean, we know that Islam came to correct certain errors that had crept into some earlier religions. One of them clearly is attitudes to nature and the body and desire in the Christian context, which have become very dualistic following Augustine, world denying, um, uh, celibate, monastic, and Islam overthrows that because it's good news. Uh, it wishes us to embrace the world and see it as something sacred, not to run away from it. Uh, and in that embrace of the world, we find the Qur'an is ceaselessly invoking God's signs in creation. Endlessly. To the Arabs who actually didn't see much living nature because they were living in these desolate deserts. You know, Mecca is like a city on the surface of Mars, really. There's nothing growing around it. But oh, the Qur'an's image of this world and the next world as being places of life and that life as being from the rain, which is you know, metaphorical of what happens in our souls, makes for a very different and very green theology. And it's not our civilization that's destroyed the, the ecosystem of the world, whatever else people might finger us for. No, it's Western civilization that produced the capitalistic and socialistic greed and materialism that has overburdened the world, which has finite resources with infinite human desires. There's a, there's a profound malfunction in their system now. So we're called upon, I think, to try and put things right. But that doesn't just mean, you know, building more mosques with solar cells on the roof. That's kind of putting a plaster on a wound, but trying to see where the sickness is in the first place, which is in the instrumentalizing of the natural world simply for human desires and fulfillment and ego. If we restore the sense of the sacred to the, to the created world, then 
these other turbo capitalistic exploitative systems will not attract people any longer because they'll find that nature is valuable, not just as our life support system, but as a sign of God that needs to be revered as well as just preserved. You know, another moving passage, you, you quote how the Salat is designed as a universal geometric and cosmic ritual. Yeah. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the form of Islam is notably different from that which seems to have gone before in other religions. And clearly, and there's a number of modern Muslim theologians who've looked into this, uh, relates us to very primordial patterns and cycles in creation notably the movements of the sun and the moon. And for 100,000 years, human beings have been observing that and it's, it's shaped their outward and inward life. So by going back to that, uh, Islam demonstrates its claim to being Deen al-Fitra, the religion of the primordial natural disposition, that just as primordial humanity or the Hopi Indians to this day have a chant when the sun goes up because uh, the miracle of sunrise demands some kind of deep human response. It's a shame to just goggle at it and go back to playing with your phone. You, you need a ritual to acknowledge that. So the primordiality of Islam also allows us, while operating functionally in the context of you know, the complexity of late modernity, also to engage with these fundamental cyclical things which we're designed to respond to. And that must be very good for the human psyche, uh, as well as being good theology. To, to, to sum up, uh, can you can you tell us how traditional Islam can equip us to, to live, progress, and, and contribute in what you describe as an age of declension and anxiety? I mean, how do we restore the asinataqwim that you talk about in, in, in that chapter? Well, traditional Islam, of course, was an enormously diverse thing. And that's part of what I want to say, that we don't benefit from a kind of totalitarian single interpretation of Islam. Otherwise, we get all of those finger-wagging moralists in the mosque just criticizing each other, and that's not you know, what, what, what God wants. Uh, traditional Islam had plenty of room for diversity, uh, and that has been lost sight of because perhaps we find diversity makes us anxious. We want a single Islamic answer to everything, and so we favor these totalitarian new forms of Islam. But... Uh, Traditional Islam also is, it's about Nia, it's about the Qibla, it's about coming to God with a sound heart. And it's also about Islam in the ultimate sense, which is submitting to God and recognizing that everything is submitting to God. And the scholars say that one of the wisdoms of Islam's really emphasizing the divine omnipotence in this age, where the submitters and where the people say, la hawla wa la quota illa billah, etc. This fatalism, if you like, is because the eschatological times in which Islam will spread will be times of such panic and disorder and sorrow that human beings will only remain sane if they are told at their deep religious level that God is still in charge. Otherwise, everybody goes mad because the world is going mad. But only when you see that, yep, God is behind everything, although the wisdom may not be discernible to us, can you retain any kind of peace and sanity in this, uh, this world of conflagration?
Thank you so much. Um, mashallah. Um, I'm joining in for a wee bit of a Q&A session. However, I've got a huge apology to make because um, earlier you're reminding us of the, the disliking of fanatics. But I am an absolute fan of the book. Alhamdulillah, I absolutely loved it. Um, and uh, mashallah, I think it's a, a fantastic book for everybody. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I would say to that that what I have found in 40 years of sitting in Islamic libraries is that Islam is amazing. Mm -hmm. That hasn't diminished. So what is amazing in the book is simply you know, reflecting what Allah and his messenger have given us. Um, all I'm doing is kind of serving up something that has something of the fragrance of, of heaven without my interfering too much, I hope. Well, alhamdulillah, and I thank you for doing that as well. And really, it kind of relates to my question, that point, which is that, um, you know, it's, it's a rich book. And as I say, I think it is a book for everybody, but also it's, it draws in a great um, academic richness, a great richness of research and so on. Um, Myself as a reader, I like to reach rich academic texts. My education is in, uh, you know, philosophy and religion and so on. So my question is, you know, I've, I've shared this about with so many friends as well. Um, for those of us um, who are reading um, uh, this kind of book, where would you suggest to go to next for people who want to read um, this kind of rich writing, uh, but uh, through the Islamic lens that reminds yeah. Allah? Well, Alhamdulillah, when I became Muslim, there was really very little on the shelves a few badly printed, badly translated things from various Muslim countries overseas. Otherwise, you just had to read the Orientalist stuff, which was always quite indigestible. But now, alhamdulillah, there's so many interesting people writing. Um, I like the recent books of Michael Sugic, for instance, very effective. Heart's Turn in particular is a very powerful kind of book. Um, I like the books of Rusmir Mahmoud Chahayic, the Bosnian theologian, who I think has some very interesting and, and unusual perspectives. I like the books of Henry Bayman. Um, Etzkoi Shutoma, who I think features on your lineup in this event, is another person who understands how the modern mind needs to have religion explained to it. Uh, so, yeah, alhamdulillah, there are some... Uh, Rabia Brodbeck, the Swiss Muslim writer, has some really very good books. So alhamdulillah, you know, the, the ummah is becoming active. It's not brain dead, whatever some people might think. And it's just the, the beauty of the monotheistic principle. You know, there's never been a more powerful idea in history than monotheism. And Islam has it in a particularly powerful and beautiful way. So sooner or later, despite all the turbulence, you know, truth will out. The light can't be vanquished. Alhamdulillah. Thank you so much, Sheikh. Um, we, we're going to have to wrap up. As always, I'm sure uh, your conversations um, are always too short for those of us engaging. I want to ask that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept your efforts and inshallah that people can benefit for it for generations too. I mean, uh, a personal thank you as well. Uh, thank you for the recommendations. I'll bid you uh, adieu just now and let you go for salah. Assalamu alaikum wa so Alhamdulillah, um, just want to say a massive thank you to everybody uh, for the festival and just ask that you keep us in your du'as uh, and that you reward all those involved. Thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. For more podcasts, search for RR365 wherever you get your podcasts.